My name is Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton. Before we get into today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. This week's Forgecast is brought to you by our mate Robert Weber Abrasives, Australia's lead distributor for 3M products, including the delicious Cubitron grinder belts. High quality belts produce fast, clean work, so be sure to visit abrasives.on.net and get your next order of belts from Weber. Yes, new website coming soon. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, what what have you been up to this week, Alex? I've been busy, busy, busy. I've been absolutely inundated with orders. Actually, um, Kiridashi went back on sale again on my Etsy store and immediately started. I've got six to do already. Um, I've been um, I finished the the other uh, the final, last of the knives that are going to that hunting store. Um, I'm really happy with how it came out. I experimented with Delrin for the first time. That was a bit that you sent me. Yeah, it looked really um, good. Really interesting uh, material. And yeah, it was really cool. Um, even Kyle Royer liked the post about it, which was a big buzz. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> nice nice to have happen. But yeah, played with some new etching techniques because um, I thought I'd put a deer head on the, the blade, mm. uh, etched into the blade because um, apparently... Um, hunters down here love putting deer emblems on things or stag <laughs> emblems on things. So um, it's a big thing, even if they don't hunt them. They uh, they like the stags and the deers. So um, I etched that into the side, which is cool. Um, and with some Philippine rosewood on the Delrin, the black Delrin, it looked quite nice. Yeah, nice. Um, and I've been doing some sheath making for all the knives that are going to the hunting stores because uh, people don't like buying knives without sheaths. Mm. Um Got an order for a triplet set of throwing knives, um, which is interesting, especially since the customer wanted one to be razor sharp, one to be averagely sharp, and one to be blunt. <laughs> that's which, a that's an interesting request. Yeah. Uh, however, wanted them to look as identical as possible, so you can't tell which is which. So I've still got to put like a fake edge, like mirror edge, on them. Mm. I'm, I'm wondering sure. if it's for a maybe a magic trick or something. Maybe. Who knows? I don't know. Because like, it's like for, as a as a knife thrower myself, I, that concerns me a little bit. It does me as well. Because like because uh, I throw knives too. I don't, there's not really much point to that. I don't like I don't like having super sharp throwing knives, mainly because occasionally they like to come back at you. Yeah, you know, very quickly. Pointy pointy knives is good, but but sharp. Mm. Mm. That's right. It's not like kung fu <laughs> movies. <laughs> no, I mean you know like yeah. They don't need to cut. That's kind of the thing. Mm. But, you know, um, ours is not to reason why. I also, as people would probably remember from a couple episodes ago, I got an, an order from Niels Vandenberg, mm. which is both super exciting and super terrifying. Um, he wants one of my mushroom knives, and like the masochist I am, I've decided to make him a folder. Uh. But what, a, what an opportunity, though. Like, you know... I am never going to get an opportunity like that again. <laughs> it's not every day you get the chance to put your uh, put your knife in the hands of someone like Niels Vandenberg, especially when he's paying you for it. Like, <laughs> that's insane. 
Also, um, given the fact that I'm not even sure if he knows this, like every knife maker has the person who is their big influence as a knife maker. Like Kyle Royer is really yours. Mm. Niels has been mine since I started my journey. Like he has been the knife maker guy for me. So to actually get to put one of my knives in his hands is, even though it's for his wife, he'll get to, he'll look at it. No, of course he will. <laughs> he'll tear it apart. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, it's both terrifying and exhilarating I'm, I'm sure since he requested it he probably won't tell, tear it apart when he sees how different my work is to his <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to do my absolute very darndest to, to at least make him be slightly mildly impressed yeah, absolutely and I mean using that opportunity to push yourself to to further heights is you know is kind of the, it's kind of living up to his vibe isn't it well that's it you know and, and, and that's one of the great things about Neil so you know I'm sure he'll love it no matter what. Mm. But that is that um, is truly awesome. Yeah. Uh, I also got to um, see a, uh, a knife of mine come back again um, for a uh, just a touch-up, basically. He wanted, the, um, he wanted it to be that super, super mega sharp again, the, the, the fresh <laughs> sharp. And um, the good thing was he's put it through like another 15 animals like he, he actually fully butchers and skins his own animals um and it was still it it still popped hairs just not consistently mm. um and by the time i was done with it it was it was like a razor again but it was really every time i see that knife again um because he lives quite close to me so he always brings it to me it only has ever needed honing mm. i've only ever stuck it on a polishing belt with polishing compound yeah, and nice. that's it and i'm just so chuffed to 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 get that back it's um not the prettiest knife i've ever made but it's definitely um living up to the standard that i'm trying to hold for myself which is validating yeah that's that's the key isn't it yeah um and i've also started a really fun project this week uh, which you probably won't see the results of for a while because i'm waiting on a few things for it but I've, I've always had a fascination with ancient board games yeah, I saw um, you were preparing, you know, to do some cool stuff like that. Yeah, well, I'm I'm a mad keen Nefertafel player, um, and I have plans to make ornate and uh, at least one ornate, um, like center table centerpiece quality uh, Nefertafel set for people to play. Um, but I wanted to sort of have three. I wanted to have a game that is based purely in skill, which Nefertafel is. I wanted to have a game that, while there is a certain amount of skill, there is also a certain amount of chance in it. And for that, I've uh, chosen the, the game Ur, mm -hmm. you know, the royal game of Ur, which I have been playing with a prototype set that I made up. It is so much fun. It's like Mario Kart from 6,500 years ago. <laughs> it's really good. Um, it's a spectator sport game, and I'm actually going to be going live on Instagram on Sunday playing a game of it. Nice. Um, so, just, so just to show people how much of a spectator sport it is um, and the final one is I'm going to make a nice ornate Mia set I've yeah. made them before but I'm going to make quite a nice one because that's kind of like a party game so a game of skill a game of chance and a party game I thought is a nice uh, triplet of ancient games yeah that's really um, cool I like that I love, I love those kind of pet projects that you know are kind of outside the box yeah, They're absolutely. Cool. I want to try and bring them back, especially like I'm after playing it a few times now. Um, 
Ur is phenomenal. Yeah, I saw a documentary on YouTube about Ur, the royal game of Ur, and I was yeah. very interesting. You know, it's a very interesting game. It's the predecessor to backgammon. Mm. Um, but the the Romans came up with backgammon, I believe it was. Um, but I really consider Ur to be the superior game. It is phenomenal. Yeah, it's I've, one of the most fun games I've played. <laughs> I've never really enjoyed backgammon, so you know it's it's interesting that Ur seems more interesting to me than the backgammon did. Yeah, well, by the time this goes out, people will have already hopefully seen my live stream, and hopefully I've converted more people and bringing it back. Then again, if I was to make a like a, a game, it would probably end up making a, a set of poker cards. Yeah. <laughs> forged, Out of forged steel. Forged steel. Poker <laughs> like the set. deck would be about 16 kilos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There'd be no sliding one of those up your sleeve. <laughs> That's right. Clang. You've been hiding it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, wouldn't and, have, you wouldn't um, have to pull a pistol on anyone. You just hit him with the deck. <laughs> and speaking of old things that are really cool, um, my song of the week um, is actually from a very obscure band that many people probably have not heard of because they never actually got published. They never got a record deal and yet became one of the most influential bands in history. Hmm. They pressed their own records and sold them on street corners. Um, but they have since become the considered the godfathers of the stoner rock genre. <laughs> Fair enough. That's a, that's and you a listen to title. their music and it sounds like a lot of other artists, but the other artists came after them. Hmm. Um, and the band is Sir Lord Baltimore. Interesting. Um, they did one incredible album that changed, that influenced this massive array of future rock artists and metal artists and all these sorts of things uh, throughout history. They grew up listening to these guys and thought, that's brilliant. I want to model my music off that. Um, but then they all, they found Jesus and they converted to a Christian rock band and very quickly lost favor. Nobody wanted to listen to them. <laughs> Funny that. Yeah, their one album, though, is called Kingdom Come, and that is the actual title track of the first song on the record, and it is absolutely mind-bendingly phenomenal, and that is my song of the week, Kingdom Come by Sir Lord Baltimore. <laughs> one of those crank it to 11 sort of songs, That's... and it's just phenomenal. That is cool. That is hilariously cool. Uh, so how about you, Sam? What have you been up to this week? Oh, just, well, besides being, you know, brain-meltingly tired uh, the <laughs> last couple of days, I have been busy working on commissions. Uh, I finished the Mongolian Truce, which I've talked about a couple of episodes ago. It looks so good. Yeah, it came out pretty nice. I'm pretty happy with it. Um, put the video up on my YouTube channel, uh, which has been getting some good positive feedback, which is good. Um, the only thing I didn't show in the video was the, the quote unquote scabbard that I made for it because, um, basically I just knocked a couple of pieces of pine together and, <laughs> and drilled some holes in it to put the chopsticks in, uh, because the customer is going to eventually get a uh, custom sheath made for it by someone else. So I believe they were traditionally, they had the, the little tube thing, but that then went into a silk um, belt hanging sort of sheath thing that holds both of them separately. 
Um, so uh, most of the traditional ones, uh, the they would be a wood core uh, scabbard for the knife, which was then wrapped in leather, and the leather had two stirrups in it for the chopsticks to go into. And then right. all of that would kind of be ringed with uh, chased filigree you know, of like silver mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, but obviously, at the price point that my client was uh, was you're not paying do that i was not putting that much uh work in um as much as that would have been nice you know that you have to kind of limit yourself uh you can't put sixteen hundred dollars worth of work into a you know five hundred dollar piece um i was reading about the history of those knives and it's actually phenomenal um the reason why they existed yeah (laughs) and i mean it's funny because like even though the set that i'm making i made was specifically mongolian and the the blade profile and stuff like that and the the whole layout was kind of based on on a mongol knife from the 1630s or something like that um the the truce has been used throughout uh asia and you know into you know northern africa and and stuff like that it's it's quite a common uh quite a common kit for for that mm. that region and um, you don't often do eating blades no and i mean i i, tr- I don't don't often do that kind of stuff mainly because it just doesn't uh thrill me but uh, one of the things i like about the truce is that it's not just an eating knife um mm. they were a, a general purpose utility kind of like a a scandinavian sax you know the, the the um the whole idea behind the sax being that it was just a knife that you wore um it, it's kind of that one of those things where you use it for anything, including eating. Uh, this one is going to be used purely for eating, but <laughs> that's mm-hmm. you know besides the point. I really liked the history of it. I liked the design, the the inline kind of design, very very linear, very sleek. Uh, and I, the moment I got the the got the uh, commission, I knew I was going to do brass and stag, which are two of, like my my two favorite handle materials to stick together because they look so good together and you did such a good job on that peened brass oh thanks yeah it was my first time doing peened brass bolsters but luckily i'd had some inside tips as to how to get that fit just right and Mm -hmm. it went so smoothly it was not funny like (laughs) i was not expecting it to to go as well as it did Uh, i was fully expecting it to go to absolute shit (laughs) but it, it actually went really well um so yeah if you're interested in checking that out you can check that out on my youtube channel um on top of that i forged another set of tongs to add to my burgeoning new tong collection uh to replace look awesome as well yeah to replace all my tongs Uh, i've decided that i'm going with a theme in that they're all going to get my maker's mark and they're all going to get brass brush brush. yeah because i kind of like the look Uh, i did it on the first one just because you know i wanted to try it out and, and see how it would look but now i kind of uh, now, because I've done it on three of them, I'm going to have to do it on all of them. And I've, I've decided that I'm working from the smallest and easiest, and I'm going to start working my way into the bigger tongs. Um, so all of the tongs I've made so far have been out of inch by quarter inch stock in the Roy Adams style of, of making things. Uh, and I've got a couple more that I'm going to make in that style, but then I'm going to start moving into the, the bigger heavy duty stuff out of the 20 mil square and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I might do videos on some of them. I might do some in live streams and stuff like that. It's been good, um, just getting the getting my tooling to a place where I'm comfortable. Not only are they usable tools, they're very good tools because I've taken that extra time 
but they're also good looking tools which is and a ple- pleasure to use a good looking tool well and, I've, and that's kind of the thing is that you know i found myself more and more kind of going towards the really artistic looking tools uh, I think Clickspring may have had something to do with that because mm-hmm. everything that Clickspring uses is like the fanciest he can make it, <laughs> which I love. You know, the whole idea of, of being able to, uh, you know, both enjoy looking at and using your own tools is, is great. And some, that's something that I want to continue in my workshop. So expect to see more pretty things coming out of my workshop. Um <laughs> And, uh, yeah, just trying to catch up on stuff. I spent the entirety of today cleaning out my workroom, uh, the room that I record in and, uh, do most of my cold work, my, my engraving and my hand sanding and all that kind of stuff. So that has been completely, uh, reworked. Yeah. Uh, we've got to shift around a couple of, uh, cabinets and drawer sets and stuff like that this weekend, but, um, we're, we're pretty much set. It's looking. It is. It is freeing to have a freshly cleaned workspace, though. It's. Oh man, I I can actually see the floor. It's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) There's a floor. There, there is a floor. Beautiful hardwood floor. Um, and I've decided that I'm now because I've got a collection of swords now, uh, that I have made and uh, you know stuff like that. I'm gonna start making a sword wall. Um, (laughs) Your live stream swords. Oh, I'm just going to have a sword wall so I can maybe, maybe when I'm doing videos, I can stand in front of my sword wall. That's a good idea. <laughs> You'll start looking like Shadowversity. Yeah, you need a throne, get or, a wooden throne. Yeah, or Matt from, uh, from, um, Scholar Gladiatoria. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, that's something I've always wanted to do and now I've got the space to do it. So I'll probably do that. Uh, what else is there? I think that's it. I forged a recurve fighter blade. Yes. That was a pain in the ass. As recurve fighters often are. They can be, yeah. I, and I, uh, oh, that's right. I made a one inch platen for my 2x72 and yeah. I'm currently splitting belts to make one inch belts. Uh, <laughs> I may end up ordering some one inch belts from Rob just because I, <laughs> just cause I'm lazy. Uh, yeah. But yeah, one of the reasons I made that one inch uh, contact uh, surface was because when grinding. Uh, recurves or you know inside curves having a narrow contact surface is incredibly important Uh, something that niels vandenberg actually pointed out to me recently yeah and that's actually where i got the idea to make the one inch contact uh one inch platen was because i don't have a one by 30 like you do so i don't have the option of using one of those uh and the only other grinder quote unquote i've got is my little bench grinder which yes has a you know, kind of narrow contact surface, but it only has one grit. Yes. <laughs> and I was Two. not... Yeah, that's it. I was not going to be hand sanding out a bench grinder grind um, with... Well, not with that attitude. With sandpaper. Well, I mean, I could, but it wasn't going to freaking happen. You start with 36 grit sandpaper. <laughs> so, no, instead having the opportunity to, you know, like having the, the availability of super high grit... Um, grinder belts means that I can take it to whatever finishing grit I want and then just hand sand straight from there um, mm. without having to step through sanding grits which is something I've, I've come to really enjoy using Trizac and Norax belts to get super high finishes off the belt grinder so I can just go straight to linear hand sanding rather than having to do cross grits yeah. um, 
you know, while, while cross-gridding is, is a viable method and it's great for those people who are starting out and have limited belts and, you know, whenever I run out of belts and I am too cheap to buy more, <laughs> uh, it's useful. Um, I prefer to just go straight to linear if I can. Um, yeah, so that was that. I'm looking forward to using this one-inch platen. It was a bastard to make because I had to get it all dialed in properly. What's the uh, project that inspired wanting a one-inch platen? Uh, this recurve fighter. Oh, right. So you're not doing like a, yeah, a sickle build or something <laughs> like that? <laughs> oh, maybe one day, but no. No, this, this recurve Comrade. fighter... <laughs> this recurve fighter, um, the, the customer actually... The, the recurve that I forged in, uh, I thought was going to be enough, but apparently he wants it a little bit more kind of Persian in, in you know aesthetic having that real swoop and mm -hmm. so um in order to get that really tight inside radius i decided that i was going to need a custom platen um and it'll also help if i ever want to make more karambits because i made that one karambit on my live stream and and that was a massive pain to grind so uh, oh, mushroom knives oh mushroom knives well i mean that's a, that's the other thing is that you making all these mushroom knives has made me consider making one at least yeah, um, <laughs> I have grown mushrooms before, uh, and I might do it again. So you know, who knows? I it's actually have... a super fun hobby. It is. It's great. I mean, I just bought one of the mushroom boxes from Bunnings. Mm -hmm. You know, the pre yeah, they were, and yeah. just you know, sit it in the bottom of the cupboard, and it was great because you know we eat hundreds of mushrooms at my place. Like you know, mushrooms and, are and awesome. you you'll be shocked at how much better yield you get if you start carefully slicing them instead of just popping them off. Yeah, well, I mean, that was the thing is that, you know, it only lasted a month or so before mm. before it died out because we were just, you know, kind of tearing them uh, out of the Yeah, a lot, a lot of people don't realize that the mushroom is just the fruit. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's it's just the, just the fruit of... It's just the ability to seed more mushrooms. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that is definitely a plan. And now that I have my one-inch uh, platen, I can do that. I actually slightly uh, radiused the the platen as well not not ver idea. vertically but but horizontally i radiused it slightly mm. so that it's got an almost uh it's not a hollow grind it's it's yeah it's yeah it's, yeah it, you get what i mean yeah uh, across the one inch a perpendicular a, hollow grind <laughs> yeah i'm trying to yeah yeah that's it it's a dead straight platen but it's got a convex uh along its surface so that it can make a contact it can make contact along the whole face of the belt uh inside the radius mm. rather than just the two edges <laughs> yes uh because unlike when niels does his grinding he uses uh rubber uh contact wheels which which is also curved well yeah i mean the the thing is is that they naturally curve to the surface anyway even if you don't dress them curved uh naturally it will crown them um, mm. in, in his case with contact wheels um, the, the rubber will kind of convex or concave to whatever surface you're trying to press against uh, mm. which helps with those kinds of things but with a steel platen you really don't have that option <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, I, I crave the day where I actually have contact wheels uh, it's one day yep. one yep. day I've been I've had a like a 30 centimeter contact wheel in my basket on ebay forever <laughs> that and a 20 mil um small wheel cartridge mm, yeah no, between was... those two i could do so many cool things that they're just yeah. not necessary purchases right now 
Yeah, I've I've had my eye on the uh, the small wheel attachment for the for the fire and, and the contact wheels, which is still available from Five Hands Fabrication. Even though he sells the Scorpion now, he do, still does have attachments for the fire ant. Um, mm. He doesn't do the small wheel anymore, but the guys he used to source the small wheel from are OBM over in uh, America. If you're ever looking yep. for a, a small wheel attachment, they do them. And uh, yeah, I really want one. <laughs> Yeah. Just, I've been sitting there drooling over it, kind of thinking, oh, the things I could do with that. I'm just so tired of using sanding drums on Dremels. Well, I mean, the, the big thing for me is that I want to be able to tilt my grinder over first. Uh, I want to be yeah. able to do the tilt tilt mount before I do that. And the tilt mount's quite expensive um, mm. because his tilt, uh, Jake's tilt mount for the uh, fire ant doesn't just tilt 90 degrees. It also rotates 90 degrees. Uh, because it has a disc grinder attachment, which is another thing I want for my fire ant. <laughs> because then I'd have a VFD-powered disc grinder. Disc grinder, yeah. yeah. VFD-powered, two-horsepower disc grinder, which would be freaking amazing. <laughs> it would be. Um, and so, yeah, I need to buy the disc grinder attachment and the, the, um, the tilt mount before I can buy the contact wheels. Yeah. And so, therefore... Just like it all adds up really quickly to over a thousand dollars, which I just don't have. Yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> we're knife makers, not billionaires. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I just need to sell a few knives. I have had a few knives sitting in my Etsy store for a while, and they're just kind of sitting there. Um, and I have another one that I need to put on there. I only realized the other day that I still haven't put that uh, Japanese inspired buoy up, oh, right. up on my Etsy store. It's still sitting yeah, there. Yeah, better get on that. Yeah. So that's going to go up. And I'm actually considering putting up my 48-hour dagger uh, after yep. seeing yours disappear like that. Um, yep. I'm gonna 12 make, hours. Yeah, I'm going to make myself a display mount kind of like yours and uh, and put mine up, I think. Mm. You convinced me. <laughs> Good. It deserves to be in the hands of somebody who will appreciate and admire it every day. Yes. Uh, so what about your song of the week? My song of the week this week is from the lead singer of Silverchair, who did a, uh, Brendan Fanning, uh, who did a solo career for a while and uh, did an album called Tea and Sympathy, which is uh, one of my favorite kind of chill out albums. Uh, mm -hmm. And the song Songbird from that from that album. Like the, there are a few of my favorite songs on that album, but Songbird... By Bernard Fanning. Um, very cool violin in that. There, there is a, a commonality between a lot of my music is that I like violin. <laughs> yeah. Specifically fiddle. Uh, I like fiddle in a lot of things, but yeah. Um, I used to listen to Songbird all the time when I was a teenager, and recently, I, Tea and Sympathy, the album, came up on my Spotify uh, Recommended. Yeah, and I was oh my god, I haven't listened to that in ages. So that's been on the playlist <laughs> for this uh, for this week. I um, yeah, Bernard Fanning is a, a talented singer. Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny because I don't actually like Silverchair um, too much. Like I, I've listened to a couple of things, and a couple of the songs are okay, but Silverchair never really got me. But then when T and Sympathy came out, I loved it, and you know, the most of the songs on that I can quite happily listen to over and over again. So I think it was just a stylistic thing. Yeah. Sometimes good to be taken back to old memories. It's, it's amazing how many times I'll hear a song that um, used to mean a lot to me, but I had genuinely forgot it existed. And yeah. then you, you hear it again and it brings it all back and takes you back. And 
you'd even, you really find that even though you've totally forgotten about it, you still know half the lyrics. <laughs> yeah, was, honestly, it's it's been weird because um, it all started for me like four or five weeks ago. I decided to listen to a song that I hadn't listened to in a long time. I can't remember which it was, but suddenly it was on YouTube that I was watching it and all of the recommended was full of songs that I'd forgotten that I used to love. And so I went on this kind of YouTube journey through my childhood and my teenagehood and stuff. And so I've been compiling this list of all these songs that I used to listen to on repeat on my iPod, like the original iPod back when yep. it was a brick. Um, yep. And, uh, you know, I've just been like kind of collecting them because some of them, some of it's for nostalgia, but some of it's because they're just genuinely good songs. Yeah. Um, and I also find I'm a very, um, sensory emotion emotive person so you know like if i smell a certain thing it, it reminds me of a certain emotion or a certain time uh and it's the same with music i i can almost put myself in the place where i first heard the song or when the song was most impactful um you know like if i ever hear um white flag by dido like it it's always raining whenever i hear that song it doesn't matter what the day is what the time is you know, whether I could be standing in the middle of 42 degree heat, but it's raining when I hear that song. Um, so, you know, it's, it's one of those things. So a lot of these songs have been bringing back memories that I forgot I had. Uh, <laughs> and it's been, that's been interesting as well. Uh, which has been good in this, uh, in this isolation and stuff, just kind of reaching out to the past to remind myself, yeah, remind myself of the fact that the world didn't always used to be fucking doom, gloom and, and conspiracy <laughs> theories. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, do we have any listener emails, questions? None that um, were there. There were a couple, but there were such quick answers that I have already emailed, emailed them back. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So I suppose inspiration of the week. Inspirations. Would you yeah. like to go first, or would you want me to go first? Yeah, mine's a different, a different one. Um, my anybody who watches my YouTube videos or looks at any of my posts uh, would know that my workshop looks like a bomb site um, perpetually. It's just terrible. And um, it's just because like I, I, everything has a place and there's drawers and I've got tool chests and I've got all sorts of tool storage devices and that. But when I put everything away, I then need things while I'm working and I don't want to put it back into a drawer when I might have to pick it up again very shortly. Um, and so I... Um, inevitably have things lying on every flat surface everywhere ever <laughs> and um then when all the flat surfaces are taken up things just get left on the floor and then i start picking my way through it because i'm too busy to actually um actually stop and do a clean because cleaning that entire workshop it's like a day's work yeah and the um, only time you ever actually end up picked up end up picking anything up is when you almost kill yourself falling over it yeah but even then i just kick it under a bench <laughs> <laughs> Yep. But I was I was um, on YouTube uh, checking out my subscription lists and um, a while back I culled a lot of people that I subscribed to on YouTube, um, channels that I'd been following for years and years and years, um, which still do good content, but they just, it wasn't really, like you change as a person and things that interest you change and all that sort of thing. But one that has persisted since I found him years ago um is Nighthawk in Light, his mm. name is. It's a strange YouTube name, but I, I don't know what it's referencing. Um, but, yeah, Nighthawk in Light. 
did a video where he did his own version of a build that Adam Savage had done, which is a rolling tool caddy that's actually um, more than just... I mean, everyone's got those sort of tool carts where it's like you've got a top shelf and a bottom shelf and a handle and caster wheels and whatever. I've had those in the past, and they just end up being a a portable pile of crap. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But Adam Savage had the idea to actually have a thing that's covered in, like, hooks and mounting holes and things like that that can actually roll around your workshop. Um, And um, Nighthawk in Light did his own build of it, which actually... Um, he did his version of it, which was slightly larger and more heavy duty, but the top of it is a small workbench mm. with a vice attached to it, and he had a drill press on the other end. Um, and all of the tools that he most commonly uses were actually hanging down the sides of this thing on these little mounting holes and hooks and that, and they're just in plain view. So you're not putting them away when you're done with them. You're just hanging them on the side of this thing and they're just as easy to pick up again. Yeah. And you don't have to, like... if Normally, if you put something away in a drawer and you end up on the other end of your workshop, you've got to walk back to the drawer and get it and all that. So that's what leads to you ending up just leaving it on a flat surface near you. This caddy is on casters and you move it around with you, move it around the workshop. And it just keeps everything on hand, readily accessible and within, you know, visible... You can see it. It's right there. It's laid out beautifully. Mm. Um, And it just inspired me so much because I thought that is the perfect solution to my workshop always looking like a damn bombsite (laughs) because it literally can follow me around. If I'm working over by Frankie, I can have it over next to me there. If I'm going down the other end to do hand sanding, I can have it over me near there. If I'm going to my uh, workbench, I can take it with me there. And everything's just there. It's visible. I can just grab it. I can just put it back. Uh, It has a place. And that little tiny workbench on the top, while not practical for any large projects, is perfect size because it's about 30 centimeters deep and about 60 centimeters wide and it has a vice on one end of it Mm. i'm I'm not going to put a drill press on like nighthawk and light does in his video which i highly recommend you check out but i am going to put i've got a spare vice and i'm going to put that there because having a vice nearby is is handy yeah always can't have too Um, many vices yeah and then mounted under the vice you have all your clamps ready to go and all that Mm. sort of thing and you can never find a clamp when you want one um (laughs) And it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of um, inspired me to, because everybody's got different ideas on how to organize a workshop, but everybody's workshop who uses it on the daily, it becomes a very personal thing and the layout and the footprint pattern that happens in it and everything is very personal to the, the user. And when I see something that's just not going to work, I don't even bother thinking about trying it. But then when I see saw this, I'm like, that would be that fits me perfectly. Clearly, this guy has the same issue I have, and he's come up with this awesome solution. Um, and it's not often that somebody manages to outthink Adam Savage, but um, <laughs> he, he did, and it's great. The, just the addition of that small workbench is brilliant. Um, Absolutely, and I mean, I'm sure that Adam would have watched it and gone. <laughs> yeah, probably there'll be a, gonna, there'll be another one. I'm gonna rebuild my rack. <laughs> Adam, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And Adam has like 18 times the number of tools that even the most tooled up individual has. Yeah, um, Adam is a bit of a tool junkie. That's true. Phenomenal number of tools, and his cart ended up looking like a giant rolling pile of tools because there was so <laughs> many different things. Yeah. And, uh, 
I mean, my most commonly used tools is expansive, that list, yeah. compared to most people, but it's still easily enough to fit on a cart very neatly. Um, so this weekend is actually my birthday uh, on Saturday, and I've decided I'm, I'm going to put all of my jobs and tasks and things on hold, and I'm going to spend the day uh, making that cart and organizing my shop so that I can actually my gift to myself will be actually a workable pleasant to be in shop once more hmm. yeah and, and for those of you listening uh, you can now wish Alex a happy birthday because his birthday will have been a week ago by the time this yeah that's right on, so. Saturday just gone <laughs> if you haven't already wished Alex a happy birthday please feel free to comment on the Instagram post happy birthday that's Alex right. That's right. Make me feel special. And send, last, him, send him lots last of year. creepy voice messages on his DMs, just singing happy <laughs> birthday in kind of a whispery tone. That'll be different to normal. <laughs> well, it'll just it'll be more people than just Dan Moss, you know? Yeah, that's right. He did actually send me a I love you message. That was... Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's, it's funny. Last year I had two people wish me happy birthday. Me. Yeah, you were one and my wife was the other one. <laughs> that was it. So both my wives. Yeah, both your wives. That's it. Yeah, so um, yeah, that's in the, I'm a popular guy. Uh, but uh, No, that, that should be interesting. What about you, Sam? What was your inspiration of the week? Well, I was about to say, um, Dad actually, my dad actually built one of those carts after watching Adam's video. Um, oh, cool. Did he find it useful? He finds it incredibly useful. Uh, dad took his own approach to it. Uh, and made it solid backed and then made a pin board on the back, you know, like a pegboard. Okay, yeah. With, yeah. with like, the outlines drawn of the cool. tools and stuff. And, yeah, every time I go over to his shop, because he's got sealed concrete. Now, the, one of the reasons that I probably won't make one of them is because I have unsealed concrete that has lots of dents and chips and stuff like that in it. And I can, All you need, Sam, are bigger casters. Uh, I, can just, <laughs> I can just see that thing going tits up. In, in my workshop and spraying files and hammers and tongs <laughs> all over my workshop. Uh, and I just, yeah, I, I have a hard enough time dealing with the amount of crap that I end up piling on my workbenches as it is. What uh, you need is a, a big articulated GLaDOS style. <laughs> that's it, yeah, that's it, yeah. With a giant red eye. And, you know. and it'll, it'll insult you sassily during the day. Well, no, that's what I've got you for. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Between you and Adam from Speargrass, I don't, I don't think I've, I, I've got an issue with being <laughs> randomly sassed in the middle of the day. Um, but no, so yeah, it's, it is a very cool idea, and it's something that I might think of uh, in the future if I get a workshop that's more tuned for that. The, mm-hmm. floor, the, the floor space set out in my workshop is also a bit weird for that kind of thing. Because I'm constantly shifting stuff around. But yeah, no, it's a very cool idea. And Nighthawk in Light is definitely someone you should check out. I really enjoyed his coffee can forge build. Um, yes. It's something that's gone around quite a bit, but he was one of well, the first like, He, he was, he one was of the like first the first people, guy to do it. Yeah, he was one of the first people to popularize it on YouTube. Like It had been going around the forums for quite a long time, but he was the first person to kind of put it in video and kind of go, here you go, this is how you do it, and show it in, in operation. And it's a really cool idea. And... Um, I've always wanted to make one just to see how it goes. Um, yeah. But <laughs> just never take I, the time. I, I really want to make a, like a, I say large, but uh, a large in quotes, a large version of it. Yeah, like a paint uh, can it, rather than a coffee can. <laughs> yeah, as deliberately as a pass-through forge for knife making. Mm. 
Yeah. Specifically for knife, like it'd be good for nothing else, but just for a pass through forge for knife making. I thought it'd be interesting. Yeah, I'm actually thinking of buying one of those um, like small LPG blowtorches that you can get from like eBay mm-hmm. for forty bucks, and and using one of those instead of a map gas torch purely because map gas runs out in like thirty minutes. Yeah. Um, so, I so, wanted to have two of them, the yeah. LPG ones. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's something I've wanted to do. Small things always interested me. Like, you know, I always liked miniatures of like, yep. you know, miniatures. Oh, there was a channel I used to follow on YouTube. I'm going to have to see if I can find it again. But he made nothing but miniature tools. And he made like an entire work, like an entire workshops full of like miniature hammers and chisels and an anvil and all this kind of stuff. It was spectacular stuff. Um, Uri and, Tuchman was going good at it for a while then. Yeah, he was, yeah. I mean, and your miniatures have always been kind of a thing. I've actually got a couple of miniature pocket knives that I've collected over the years. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I have one that's like the one of the world's smallest uh, working slip joint folders hmm. with a carbon steel blade and, and mother of pearl handles. It's, oh, you've shown me that before, yeah. yeah that's it is quite, tiny. Yeah. It's, it's, about the, it's like half the size of my th- fingernail. It's crazy <laughs> small. Uh, but yeah, I love that kind of stuff. So um, it's making a small forge just really tickles that kind of miniatures obsessed. Good for nail me. making. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> nail making and making neck knives and stuff. Making Alex style knives. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Toothpicks. That's it. It wouldn't forge a musubu in one. Not uh, that attitude. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can forge a miniature musubu. Yeah, that's right. Now I've given myself an idea, God. Uh, <laughs> anyway, with that being said, my inspiration uh, this week, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I was just going to pick one of them, but I can't pick one of them and leave the other one out. Okay. Um, so uh, my original inspiration for this week was going to be Adam Desrosiers, um, but I'm going to have to say that my inspiration this week is Adam and Haley Desrosiers. Um, they're a married couple, and they're both master smiths for the American Blazeman Society. Um, they're from Alaska, and they are incredibly talented. And not only are they talented, they're just funny. Um, they had actually a really hard time recently. Their, their, their workshop entirely burned down, mm. uh, along with multiple tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment and mammoth ivory and stabilized woods and antler and all this kind of stuff all went up in smoke. Um, Is that the one that Alex Steele was talking about? In uh, yeah, video? yeah. So a bunch of people got together and, and much like Seth Wood's situation, um, a bunch of the knife-making community got together and got them back on their feet, back working again. And uh, they're now making you know incredible stuff again, which is amazing to see and it's, great. it's really great. They're also the people who did the uh, quenching the anvil in a lake. Oh, uh, that, that, that yeah, it, okay. It went around everywhere, and a lot of people have seen it, um, but not a lot of people know where it's from. Adam and Haley actually had a couple of their anvils from that fire, um, but obviously because they were in the fire, they detempered, so they decided they wanted to requench them. So they heated them up in a bonfire and used a, a crane, a forklift, to. <laughs> lift them into the lake <laughs> and agitate <laughs> and agitate the quench, which is a really cool video. Um, but yeah, no, Adam. Adam. Uh, the reason I chose Adam was because uh, recently he did a post on his Instagram about uh, forging an integral cleaver-style fighting knife, uh, which was just badass. Like <laughs> it looks so cool, but he forges so close to shape on all of his work 
that, you know, the grinding that he does is so minimal. It's just taking off the scale. Um, Enough to make Lin Ray blush. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he he's a a master with a power hammer. Like he's he's an artist with a power hammer. And um Haley's no slouch either. She's she's really top notch when it comes to, to forging the shape. And uh, one of the really cool things they do, they like to do a lot of integrals, but they also do a lot of parkerized blades. And parkerization is the the pure blackening of steel. Like it, it gets beyond black. Um, and they, they make some killer fighting and kitchen knives with parkerized finishes, uh, that are, they're completely murdered out. They're like 100% jet black. I love it. They also have a pet deer, which is one of my favorite things. You know? <laughs> <laughs> half of, half of Haley and Adam's, uh, Instagram posts is of their pet deer. Uh, <laughs> which I approve. Is, yeah, it's just great. Uh, but they're also incredible educators, and they really encourage people to get into the craft. They're always constantly encouraging people to try new things. Uh, they're doing a lot of classes and education. Um, Haley's been teaching another uh, smith to, you know, become a, a master smith eventually. They've taken an apprentice. Um, they're just fantastic people, and they're all the the creations they come up with. Adam uh, Adam is one of my favorite people to see posts come up from in in Instagram. Because he's always forging crazy stuff. Like Adam, Adam's Adam's a man after my own heart, and he likes to forge huge, you know, kind of scary looking choppers. <laughs> so I'm always enjoying seeing the the really cool stuff that comes out of his work, and the amount of stuff he does with integrals is great. Uh, Haley does a lot of really cool kitchen knives, and she also does Bowie style fighters and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And um, the edge geometry that they get is insane. Like, when they're doing these parkerized finished knives, they finish the knife completely, send it out for parkerizing, and then when they get it back, they put an edge on it. And you can barely see the bright strip of steel at the edge because the the geometry is just so fine. Um, Hmm. And yet they can beat the ever-loving crap out of their blades and they they just hold up, you know, spectacularly. So, uh, yeah, fantastic people. I remember seeing them uh, when they were journeymen... Uh, I remember seeing a video of them going for their Mastersmiths, um, and it's been crazy to see from there where they've got now, and uh, the, the cool stuff that they're coming out with. So definitely check out Adam and Haley Desrosiers on uh, in Facebook and Instagram. I think they're on Facebook, but they're definitely on Instagram. Uh, Desrosiers is uh, D-E-S-R-O-S-I-E-R-S. Um, right. So yeah, it's like it sounds. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correct. I could be completely wrong. I think about it's that. just Derosias, isn't it? It could be Derosias. I'm not sure if they um, have Americanized it because oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> because they're not Quebecois, you know, they're, they're not Canadian, so uh, and they're not French. Uh, so uh, they, they uh, I don't know. But if uh, if anything, at least you'll be able to spell it properly when you go looking for them. Yeah. <laughs> Right, so with that said, I suppose that brings us in to Tool Time. Tool Time! This week's Tool Time is brought to you by Creative Man, our preferred supplier for blade steels, handle materials, and Tool Time goodies. Visit their awesome and easy-to-use website at www.creativeman.com.au to stock up on the things you need today. And this week's Tool Time, we are talking about chisels. Chisels. Love chisels. Yeah. Yeah, um, Kaysan, you know. <laughs> Last plan I said, now's almost gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
cold chisel. Um, yeah, they're very functional. <laughs> they're incredibly functional. Huh? Yeah, great addition to a workshop. Yeah. But um, chisels are a very surprisingly um, useful thing to have. And uh, it's, it surprises me to find how many people don't use them. Yeah, it's crazy. It's funny because we, when we talk about blacksmithing and stuff like that, a lot of the time people uh, will kind of separate chisels and hot cuts. Mm. Um, and I mean, when it comes to hot cut hardies, like hardy tools, yes, fair enough. But used from the top, anything that's a hot cut is also a hot chisel. Um, and you don't necessarily have to have a single bevel to it for in order for it to be a chisel. Uh, double bevel hot cuts can be technically chisels as well. Mm. Um, and just because they you know have a handle through them doesn't mean that you know not a chisel as well. And I actually use um, a set of masonry chisels uh, as my top hot cuts because um, when you buy a set of them, they come in different widths. Yeah. And having, when you're doing hot cutting, it's very handy to have multiple different widths. Absolutely fantastic. And I really like using the wide blade chisels for marking for like um, baskets and stuff like that mm. and for rope twists and, and pineapple twists and stuff like that. It's really useful. Absolutely. Um, and because you can have such a fine geometry on them when you're using the hot. Um, and I think that's one of the most important things is that I, a lot of people that I see make hot chisels uh, or forge themselves hot chisels is that they make them like they're making a cold chisel. Yeah. You know, they, they make them with a 60 degree bevel yeah. and they make them chonky as hell. And then they wonder why they end up squashing their work rather than cutting it. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, the, the thing is, is that even though a thin cross-section will heat up when in contact with hot steel much quicker, a thin cross-section is going to cut through a lot cleaner and a lot faster than a thick cross-section. And frankly, if you're using your chisels correctly, they shouldn't overheat. Well, yeah, that's it. You know, you should be quenching them quite regularly and keeping them cool and removing them after every hit to let it cool down just that slightest bit. A good tip is to actually have like an old coffee can or something um, that you can actually fill with water and sit on your anvil um, so that you're not actually leaning over to your mank tank to, to cool off your chisels. You can actually just dip it right there. Yeah, that's it. I and mean, it's a perfect opportunity for, you know, having an extra bit of water around as well. <laughs> yeah, a mini mank tank. Yeah, that's it. Um, but yeah, so hot chisels are, are very useful and I use a lot of them and I almost always end up losing one and then having to make one when I need it. <laughs> but they're I have stupidly I have easy about to a make. dozen different ones. Well, yeah, they're stupidly easy to make, which is the, the, the good thing. You know, like a piece of coil spring forged out into a blade. There you go. Mm. Um, and you can do um, the same thing for cold chisels. Well, round, I was just going to say while we're on the topic of hot chisels... Um, rounded uh, edges as well are phenomenal for decorative work, especially when you're doing the veining and leaves and basically walking a cut, so to speak, yeah. up a piece, um, rounded ended ones. Whereas a lot of the times, if you're buying pre-made cold chisel and that to do um, as a instead of making them yourself, a lot of the time they have a square face on them. Yeah, no square square face chisels when you're doing hot work is not advisable uh, unless you're doing it as a top hot cut tool. Well, even then, I, I prefer something that's slightly radiused um, because your the corners can end up digging into your anvil or the corners can end up digging into the Oh, work. but you should be using a chisel plate, uh, Yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, but yeah, rounded, rounded um, with slightly, at least slightly um, 
kind of crowned, crowned faces uh, is definitely a uh, not so much a rounded edge, but a crowned edge, so that it's sharp but slightly round in uh, mm. cross section is is much better um, for hot cutting, especially because you can make a long cut with a short chisel. Uh, yes. by, by, as Alex said, walking the chisel up the cut. You use the corner to identify where you're going to cut from, rotate upwards, make your chisel cut, put your corner in the end of that cut, rotate up, cut again. And if you get the angle right, you can actually um, make it basically slide along the cut uh, just by holding it at the right angle and hitting it at the right amount of force. You'll, you don't even have to rock the chisel. Um, it will just keep sliding and parting the metal. In, a, in an upcoming video that I'm going to be uploading to my YouTube channel, I actually cut a 10 mil thick leaf spring in half on my anvil face. Uh, it's 10, so it's 3 eighths by um, about 3 inches. And I have cut that with a hot cut made from a piece of coil spring. Uh, it takes me like three or four heats, but, you know, it, it can be done. <laughs> Sam can do it with a cold chisel. <laughs> and one hit. No, no, I really can't. <laughs> but on the subject of cold chisels, cold chisels are also very useful for detail work and stuff like that. It's, you know, you mm. can vein leaves and stuff like that. Cold, which is really good for uh, people who may be a little bit scared of doing it hot. Uh, which is understandable, because when you're working with small pieces like leaves, uh, where you might not have the ability to hold it down with like a hold down or something like that, uh, being able to do it cold means that you're not worried about a very, very hot piece of metal bouncing up at you and <laughs> hitting you in the face. Yeah. Um, and being able to do that cold is incredibly important. But with cold chisels, obviously, you can't have as fine a cross-section on them because you know you're, you're going to be brute-forcing into cold metal. Uh, so you need a slightly more obtuse uh, edge bevel in order to get a decent uh, cut on that. Also, if you're doing a lot of um, sort of finer work uh, for uh, sort of like quarter inch stock, uh, round stock, um, you have to cut it quite frequently because you're usually doing small things. Um, and, you know, even unless you want to keep a little angle grinder nearby or a hacksaw and have to chop it up and uh, chock it up, you can use a cold chisel and one or two hits just pop off sections of quarter-inch stock Absolutely. easily. Uh, and also bar stock if you're um, doing finials um, where you're actually parting it into triplets and, and um, fluid delays and things like that. You can actually do that with a cold chisel very easily. Yeah, one of my favorite things to do is actually um, barrel hinge barrels. Um, I'll yes. actually roll a hinge barrel, cut twice with a hacksaw to cut the center rib. And then uh, I normally custom make a cold chisel that's just wide enough to cut that center part out. And I'll just cold chisel through that and, and cut that center bit out to make my um, hinge barrel. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, a, it's great for that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, absolutely. Even um, as a tool for marking your steel uh, in such a way that you will be able to see it again at heat. Mm. Uh, a lot of, of people use center punches uh, yeah. for that, but sometimes uh, if you're trying to mark the distance between two, uh, the the length between two points, um, that is easier to do and see with a cold chisel before it goes into the fire. Absolutely, and and marking stuff for uh, you know hot cutting and stuff like that later, if you're wanting to yeah. cut and fold or something like that, you can mark it with a cold chisel. And you can actually create a divot uh, along a piece with a cold chisel that you're going to hot cut. Uh, and then you don't even have to see it anymore. You can put it on top of your hot, hot cut and drag it along until the blade of the hot cut 
falls, falls into, into it, the, yeah. and you can feel that it's there. It will click into place and it won't jump around. Very handy tools. Absolutely. We were going to talk about wood chisels, but I think we might leave that for another episode um, where we talk about woodworking tools. However, speaking of woodworking, our topic of the week is actually the use of wood with um, blacksmithing and bladesmithing. Hmm. Um, choices of wood, species of wood, and what you're looking for, the different properties that happen to it, finishing it. Uh, it's a it's a big and in-depth topic, and we probably won't be able to cover half as much as we would like to um, in it. So you'll have to let us know if you'd like to hear more about it. But a lot of people, when they get into particularly knife making, um, sort of get the impression that you can just go and use any wood um, hmm. for a knife scale, slap it on there, and that's good. You know, it's not as uh, not as simple as all that. Well, de- um, definitely not. No. Um, I, I remember when I first started, um, the only thing that I knew about needing to make handles was using something like a hardwood. I I needed to use a hardwood. Uh, that was, Mm. that was all I knew. Uh, luckily being that we live in Australia, the most easily accessible hardwood is Jarrah, which is one of the hardest woods on the planet, uh, and tends to be fairly stable even when unstabilized. Yep. So, uh, whilst it because it's got quite a tight, small grain structure, very, very tight grain structure. Uh, it's rather brittle, but in a handle, that's not you know a problem unless you're making a hammer handle out of it mm. or an axe handle. Um, but yeah, as a knife handle, it works really well. The only problem is it's not very pretty. I mean, it it's red and it looks you know like from a distance looks pretty cool, but up close, it's pretty boring. It's straight grained mm-hmm. and. Um, you, you can get some really nice figured pieces of Jarrah, like Fiddleback Jarrah and stuff like that, but they're few and far between. And you don't necessarily have to be limited to hardwoods when doing something like a, a, a handle for a knife. Uh, a lot of people think that um, softwood means actually that it is soft. Um, and there's little things like people say if you can press your thumbnail into it and it leaves a mark, then that's a softwood and as such. It's not actually the case. Balsa is a hardwood. Yeah, I was about to say, when you finish, balsa is a hardwood. <laughs> and there are um, actually where you live, Sam, there are uh, endemic species of cypress, mm. which are actually a softwood but produce an incredibly durable and hard wood. Yeah, I actually um, have a, a branch of it out the back. Yeah. <laughs> Someone and, gave it to um, me. Uh, here in Tasmania, we have um, a, a cypress tree called Suppressus macrocarpo, which produces a beautifully figured wood around the knotted parts. Mm. Um, whereas if you get the uh, the long grain segments, it's just like pine. Mm. But as soon as it gets to where branches start veering off, it's it's harder than most hardwoods. Yeah, and I mean, uh, the other thing is, of course, that um, even softwoods, uh, as you say, can have hard parts, you know, like knots and burl uh, is quite common. Um, Huon pine, for instance, a lot of people use Mm. Huon pine, even though it is a pine, um, and that's a relatively uh, hard-wearing wood. But obviously, in all of these woods, whether they be hardwood, softwood, or anything like that, when in their unstabilized form, will shift with moisture and heat um, humidity and stuff like that. Um, and that's something to be aware of in knife making. If you're making a full tang, especially if you use unstabilized woods of any kind, um, if you're in a humid environment and you send it somewhere where it's very dry, or if you have a dry season, uh, then you'll find that your scales will shrink away from your, um, from your tang and you'll end up having a proud tang. Whereas if you're in a dry climate that goes to a humid climate, 
uh, then you'll have the opposite problem. The scales will actually overgrow the uh, the tang, and you can actually have cracking from that happening if you if you dry out the scales too much, which is why sealing the scales with you know multiple layers of of a good oil like oil linseed oil or tongue oil is incredibly important. Danish oil is a good one because that usually has polyurethane mixed in with it, which mm. actually creates a sort of varnishing effect. Yeah, although I, I would avoid using varnishes and stuff like that because they tend to chip and crack and be very that's, uncomfortable in the hand. Yeah, That's why Danish oil is preferable to straight polyurethane because it actually also is thinned down with white spirits and mixed in with boiled linseed oil. Yeah, Danish oil is a good kind of uh, medium. Uh, same with like true, true oil uh, for gun stocks and stuff like that. You can get a decent gloss out of a true oil uh, mm. finish, but it's also not a, a polyurethane. Uh, finish. Mm. Although, if you're going for something like that, I have on occasion used CA glue, uh, cyanoracolate, yeah. super glue, um, as a finish for uh, unstabilized woods, especially if they're going to be in contact with moisture, like in the kitchen. Uh, and that's actually a very effective method of sealing wood because, unlike a lot of pyrolyurethanes, it doesn't just create a coating on the surface, it actually soaks into the wood, uh, especially if you use very thin super glue. Uh, which means that you don't have that issue of it cracking and popping off the wood at surface itself. Mm. Um, though it can be a bit of a bastard to apply. <laughs> yeah, I've never had um, much luck with it because it uh, I can never get quite a smooth, glossy finish with it. Mm. Yeah, it's, it, I, it's taken a few tries for me to get a, a, a method down. I might actually have to do a video on it one day of how I mm. go about my superglue sealing method. That'd be uh, interesting. But that being said, I've moved away from unstabilized woods uh, in general for most of my work um, because there gets to a certain stage where you want to create knives that are going to be um, as hardy as you possibly can make them. And when you're aiming for JS and, and MS, you want to start using materials that are going to break down less easily um, and provide the best result for your client. Uh, and in that case, I've started moving to stabilized woods. I still love natural materials, so I don't want to move away from woods and, you know, antler and stuff like that. But stabilized woods are going uh, are much superior in most cases to unstabilized because they don't uh, warp or shrink or crack as easily as um, unstabilized timbers. Uh, this is properly stabilized, by the way. Some stabilized timbers are not stabilized. <laughs> Now, as the resident woodmaster, <laughs> yes. I'm going to step in here uh, and highlight that the uh, warping and shifting that wood does, unstabilized wood does, um, happens, uh, wood warps in different ways depending on the cut, the segment, where in the tree the wood came from, the alignment of the grain, the tightness of the grain, um, and how you have positioned it and cut it uh, it will relax in certain ways and stretch in other ways depending on where it's cut um, when you are shaping say a knife handle um, and so if it has been selected from the correct part of the correct species of tree you can and, and dried properly um, and then finished properly you can genuinely expect no movement in, a, in the wood um, but not knowing what you're doing and not what, knowing what grain you're looking at, where the grain's running, what species of plant it is, um, you can expect to see sometimes bowing or curving up to two millimeters 
which when you're trying to get a flat fit up um, <laughs> is a huge gap and non and now a non-functional tool yeah absolutely i mean it, and that's true i i have you can find examples all over the place of uh old knives really old knives from like the 1800s and the early 1900s made in you know sheffield and stuff like that where they really knew their stuff and the handles are still rock solid as they were when they came out of the factory um and that's because they knew what they were doing they they had guys who specifically their only job was to select timber for this kind of stuff um you know it's the same with rifle stocks and all that kind of stuff they they had very specific job of selecting proper cuts of timber for the purpose um, one of the issues we run into these days, especially sourcing, uh, exotic woods is that if you buy unstabilized a lot of the time, sometimes, uh, they'll even be green. There are a couple of, uh, manufacturers out there who cut down, uh, vast amounts of tr exotic trees and then they blo block them up into handle blocks and send them to the retailer and they're still semi-green. Mm. Uh, and this is actually a problem I've run into myself. Uh, I bought a bunch of blocks off of a, a distributor and then contacted uh, my friend Mark Sinclair from Sinclair Stabilized Timbers to stabilize them for me. And he said, well, they're still green. I can't stabilize them. Um, <laughs> so, you know, in, they need to, they need to um, season for another, you know, half a year ha before I can use Having them. a good wood guy is very important. Oh, absolutely. Find your local wood, like find someone local who is really into his woods. You'll always find if one. You can, you can always tell, though, because you go in there and you start talking about the different uses of woods and they will corner you <laughs> and it will take you two and a half to three hours to get out of that store again. Basically, and that's, that's how you know you've found the right guy. Yeah, basically, find <laughs> Alex. Um, <laughs> find your version of Alex in your town or find your wood version of me in, you know... Uh, I, like his, his, I have a wood guy. That gives you an idea of how much of a wood nerd this guy is. Yeah, absolutely. It's I, I would timber here in northern Tasmania, and they will. I can't go there just for a quick visit to pick up some stuff. <laughs> I can't do it. It's like going for a quick visit, quote unquote, to your best mates. You start talking, and you know the goodbye lasts half an hour. Mm. Uh, <laughs> That's right. But I mean, yeah, it's like it's, no, you hang up. The the at the, the end of the day, uh, a lot of it comes down to. If I'm talking about unstabilized woods, I'm not talking about properly selected, properly cut, stuff like that. I'm just talking about you've gone to your local hardware store, picked up a lump of wood, and cut it into mm. a handle block. Which you is found a bit yeah. of firewood that looked interesting. Yeah, that's it. None, nothing wrong with it, and we've all done it, and I will continue to do it in the future. One of the advantages that stabilization has is that you can use pretty much unusable wood um, as handle material. And a perfect example of that is Jeremy Wheaton. Here in WA, he uh, Wheaton Knives, he makes um, kitchen knives with wood handles from scrap he picks up off the side of the road. Right. Uh, and his favorite thing to pick up is moldy, you know, friggin' falling apart, punky wood. You know, like really, really gnarly stuff because that has the coolest figure in it. A lot of the time you get spalting from the mold or the, you know, the figuring from the, uh, from the breakdown of the cells. And what he'll do is stabilize that and use it as a handle. <laughs> and he gets. Does he like soak it in, like fill up a mold with resin to really fill it out? Yeah. So he'll he'll stabilize it in cactus juice, and then he'll you know further put it into a um, pressure capsule with, uh, with like a, a thin casting resin. Uh, yeah, very cool. To fill out the voids, and it just it looks amazing, and it, the handle is just as solid as any hardwood you could find. Um, hmm. 
because the resin obviously acts as the the strength and the the uh, the wood is simply acting as a binder, much like in micarta. Mm. Um, but yeah, the the uh, the stabilization agents allow you to use almost unusable woods. Uh, for instance, I think it was you that sent me that bird's eye hewn pine uh, block, and that thing's got more holes than handle in it. <laughs> oh, that wasn't that wasn't bird's eye hewn. That was uh, spalted poplar. Oh, that's right. Yeah, but it's got it's got masses of holes in it. Yeah. Um, but then you know, and it's light as like it, it's light as a feather. It feels like, balsa. like balsa wood. Yeah, it yeah. feels like balsa wood. But once I get that thing stabilized, it's going to double in weight, and then I'm going to cast it in resin, and that's going to triple it in weight. Yeah. Um, and that will also you know rigidify that to the point where it will be completely bomb proof, and I get that really pretty grain. And all those holes full of resin and all that kind of stuff is going to look really nice. I uh, have a piece of it that I used a capillary stabilizing resin um, in it, and I put glow powder through it. That's right. I um, remember that. It was awesome. It absorbed so much resin <laughs> that it now has tripled in weight, and it feels like it's made of stone. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is the thing, is that stabilizing and, and using resins and stuff like that can make unusable wood usable for handles. Um, and that's the, the other thing is, is that obviously a lot of the cuts that I use are burl cuts and while burl is relatively stable in its unstabilized state, it can be really finicky depending on the tree. It likes to twist. It really does. (laughs) Um, one of the, one of the, um, pieces that I picked up from this distributor unstabilized is called snap and rattle. And, um, Snap and Rattle's a, a, an indigenous, um, you know, kind of tree from Australia. And the grain in it looks fantastic. It looks like fire. Um, and actually this, this, uh, specific piece has almost a feather pattern in the wow. handle. It looks amazing, but it apparently is, uh, historically really, really good at cracking and mm. warping out of every shape you could possibly put it in. Um, so it it desperately needs to be stabilized. So, um, it's one of those things where stabilizing is definitely, uh, advantageous. And I can't stress this enough. If you're going to get it stabilized, if you want to do it at home, do a lot of research. Um, because professional stabilizers like my friend Mark, their process takes up to three months, depending on the wood to get a proper stabilize on a, on a piece of wood, to get full penetration, to get full stabilization. Because a lot of home stabilization kits don't get full penetration. They only penetrate, you know, maybe half an inch into the wood, hmm. uh, which means that the majority of your wood is still unstabilized in the middle, and that will cause massive issues later on down the line. Although some, some people do actually cut the, their blocks to scale thickness. Yeah, First. which is probably the most advisable thing. Like, if mm. you're doing hidden tangs and you want handle blocks that are stabilized, mm. you need to take that to a professional handle stabilization uh, setup. Which is why I haven't bothered um, getting my own setup. Like, I could. It's not actually that expensive to get a decent um, stabilization setup, you know, set up. But um, when you have access to people like Mark uh, or Toby at um, Toby Fire and Steel, he does stabilization. Um, and yeah, when you have access to those kind of guys, it's so much easier to just send it to them. <laughs> Sometimes you just don't need to do that work. Um, but yeah, I mean, apart from knife handles, there's also wood that we use in blacksmithing for stuff like hammer handles. 
Uh, and I've had a lot of people ask me what would I choose to use in my handles. And uh, that answer is kind of threefold. <laughs> the, the first answer is I use what I have access to, which is normally spotted gum. Because spotted gum is um, the native hardwood in Australia that is springy enough to act as a hammer handle uh, without shattering into a million pieces. Because a lot of our woods are incredibly hard, but also but incredibly brittle. brittle. It's like ironwood. Mm. It's like iron bark and ironwood. Um, if you use that kind of stuff as a hammer handle over in the States, that stuff will shatter on you in a split instant, but it's about as hard as steel. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's pretty much like 90% of Australian hardwoods, is that they're incredibly hard, and they're very, very hard to cut through with tools and stuff like that, but they're also incredibly brittle. Um, if I could, I would make pretty much all of my hammer handles out of ash, um, or hickory, uh, if I could. Mm -hmm. uh, ash has actually be is slowly becoming my favorite over hickory, because... Um, I've used hickory in a couple of handles and I've found it to be very splintery and a little bit harder to work than ash. Ash is yep. a lot softer uh, and tends to be a little bit easier to dent and stuff like that, but I've found it a lot more easy to work with and a little bit more springy, so it actually is a little bit softer on the hand. It's got a tighter grain structure than hickory does. Uh, yeah, that's true. Australia actually has a native ash, did you know? It's called uh, white gum. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I remember you, us talking about this a while ago, yeah. It's um, it's actually got... It's not very pretty wood, which mm. is probably why people overlook it. It's got an almost greenish tint to it. Mm. Um, but it is gorgeous for hammer handles. Right. Absolutely gorgeous. It's, it's, it's closer to hickory than ash, to be honest, in terms of the feel that it has. It's got a nice whip to it. I'd love to see a bow made out of it, to be honest. You'll have to send me a bow length of it and I'll make one. <laughs> it's, it is dense. It is so heavy. Yeah, well, it's kind of like spotted gum. Spotted gum is incredibly dense. And that spotted gum makes incredible bows. Um, I've seen a couple of bows. I've fired a 140-pound war bow made out, of, um, made out of spotted gum. You can uh, draw a 140-pound bow? Yes. Good heavens. Uh, only about three or four times before I you know, start really feeling it. Uh, I can shoot a 100-pound all day. I, I, I cap out about an 85, 90 pounds. And that, that, that's like the extent of my reach. Well, my, my everyday shooter is an 80 pound um, longbow. All oh, right. I, I do recurves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. recurves are good. I, I, yeah, I prefer longbows purely because of the historicity of it. My, my everyday recurve is 55 pounds. It's like a toy to you. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's actually a reasonable weight for like, you, know, you really don't need an 80 pound bow, um, for anything. 55 pound will hunt deer quite easily, but I, I just like the, cause I mean, obviously 80 pounds to a, a British archer in the medieval days is nothing. Uh, there are bows on the Mary Rose, which they, uh, have, you know, calculated were about 210 pound, uh, pull at 28 inches, um, which traditional English archers would draw 31 inches. Mm. So, you know, they're probably looking at about 220, 230 pound draw. Um, so yeah, they, they can pull ridiculous weights. Um, yeah. I think my maximum has been 150. Um, beyond 150, I start struggling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've got a couple of friends who can shoot 190 pound bows quite easily, but you know, they're, they're all over in England, you know. Mm -hmm. Mersion bow, Mersion bow uh, hunt shooters, yeah. 
but yeah, um, beyond that, anyway, spotted gum is an incredible wood. I actually really like it for hammer handles because it's a lot denser than either ash or hickory. Uh, it has a tighter grain structure than hickory, uh, about on par with ash. Um, but it's a lot harder. It's a lot, um, less easy to damage. One of the problems I have with ash is while it's a, a springy wood, which makes it more comfortable in the hand, uh, and it's a very, it's a much lighter wood. It's also really easy to dent. If I drop the hammer on the ground, if I, you know, accidentally spin it off the anvil or something like that, which happens all the time, I end up picking up a lot of dents in my hammer handle. Whereas with spotted gum, I can wang that thing against my anvil and <laughs> it doesn't care. Um, so yeah, spotted gum is actually uh, probably one of my preferred hammer handles for longevity. Uh, but for pure aesthetics and um, for comfortability, ash is definitely nice. Um, yeah. You could use elm. Uh, you can use uh, any uh, apple, pear, uh, kind of fruit woods. Um, anything you can make a bow out of, you can pretty much make a hammer handle out of. You. Um, Me? Yeah, yes, you can make a hammer handle out of Alex. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, w one of those things is that... Um, here, here in Australia, we're kind of limited in our choices of uh, handle material woods for axes and hammers and stuff like that. I have a friend of mine who apparently makes hammers handles out of mallet wood, which was called mallet wood purely because it was used to make carpenter's mallets. Right. Um, I don't actually know the proper name for the tree that it comes from, but they call it mallet mm -hmm. wood. And I'm waiting to get some, some of that to see what it looks like. Um, but yeah, woods, woods are an incredibly interesting topic. And as Alex said earlier in the show, we could talk about this forever. <laughs> it's just, but it is, it is an important aspect to <clears throat> be wary of. Cause I mean, even outside of knife making wood become, uh, wood and steel have been partnered together throughout history. Um, everything from the, the handle on your fireplace door to, um, the handle on the cutlery that you use is, it's the the perfect material because it's insulative. It doesn't conduct heat. Um, it is um, infinitely decorative. That mm. the even you get two pieces of wood from the same tree, they look different, um, and the creativity that it, it expands you into, uh, especially when you start getting into some of the more advanced finishing techniques for wood, um, it just takes your game to the next level. And understanding how it works. Uh, it, it goes back into how I'm always talking about understanding the why, understanding the why of how wood works and the grain structures within it. And, and I mean, trees are impossible. They shouldn't exist. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, look it up. They, they shouldn't, they're not physically possible. They're made of air. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's crazy. But you, you need to understand all this if you want to get the most out of it. I mean, anybody can go and buy a stabilized block of wood, but like Sam said, if you buy it from the wrong place, it might not work. And if you don't understand why, then you, you, you're not going to know what's happening. Mm. Actually, uh, one funny thing with stabilizing woods, and I think we're going to have to do an entirely different episode on working with wood, because mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting topic. But uh, one mm -hmm. thing I will say is stabilized blocks won't warp once they're on the knife. But I have found that if you buy a block and then split it down the middle with a bandsaw, that bastard's going to warp. Yeah. <laughs> because the stresses that are made by the stabilizing process, um, if you split that, it, it likes to 
release those stresses by warping. So you need to flatten those scales out after you cut the block in half. And that'll happen with um, unstabilized timber as well. Um, the mm. same phenomenon. You'll have a piece of wood that you have squared up beautifully, and as soon as you split it down the middle, it starts wanting to cup. Yeah, it's horrible. And, I hate it. And yeah, and you, you think, oh my god, my, is my disc grinder out of whack? Or no, it's, yeah. it's not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's uh, just one of those things. But the, um, that, that's why you need to understand the why, because if you understand the why, you can prepare for it beforehand. And let's all be honest, nothing looks better than decent wood and black steel. You know, like, I, I'm a massive sucker for the old look of, of retro guns, you know, for, from, the, uh, from the 1940s and 50s, you know, dark red wood and blued steel. Uh, and it's something that's kind of come through in a lot of my work is that I really like simple, uh, simple hardwoods with uh, blackened uh, fittings. And I think some of my favorite fire pokers have not had any kind of basket twist or anything like that on the handle. They have had wood handles. Yeah. Uh, and that I really have liked that kind of aesthetic. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where wood on steel, it, they, they just go together. Yeah, it's like, you know, um, Vegemite and cheese. Spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> That's it, Sam and Alex. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that was corny. Love you, big buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, get on it. Get out there, study it, play with it, test it, try it, experiment with it. It's uh, It would be one of the most valuable notches that you can put in your belt a lot of uh, i i hear far too many blacksmiths and bladesmiths go oh i'm not a, i'm not a carpenter i don't work with wood i'll let mm. somebody else do that for me but but add it to add that um add that feather to your cap because it will expand your uh craftsman vocabulary um and what you're capable of doing and to an infinite degree absolutely and yeah it, it is an incredibly useful uh tool and one of the things that i find in knife makers is that uh, a lot of people concentrate on the steel aspect of their knives and then when it comes to handling it they just kind of throw something on there and call it good mm -hmm. but that's kind of like you know forging a mosaic damascus billet and then wrapping it in duct tape and calling it a handle yeah you know, that's I, I don't want well you guys that's to... being said i've seen carl royer wrap his handles in duct tape <laughs> Yeah, but not as the finished piece. <laughs> yeah, it would be a shame if he just said, oh, that's good. I'll yeah, leave it there. That'll do. Just inside, it. Out, inside out duct tape. There you go. Perfect handle. <laughs> but I mean, the, the thing is, at the end of the day, uh, from a bladesmith's perspective, knives are two parts. They're the blade and the handle. And um, in, in bladesmithing, you can almost always tell what someone likes more in their job than the other. So, you know, someone will hand me a knife and I'll know that they're a handle person the moment they handle, hand it to me because the handle will have had 6,000 times more work on it than the blade. And then there'll be other guys, and I, I'm one of these guys, that focuses 90% of his energy on the blade, getting the geometry perfect, getting the finishes nice, all of the angles and kind of stuff done perfectly, and then they just throw a handle on there and hope it works. Yeah, because <laughs> they really don't care. Whereas um, I insist on shaping all of my handles by hand, yeah, um, exactly. and then sanding them up to six hundred grit minimum, yeah, by hand. And I just sit there on a little stool in my shop. Yeah, Alex. <laughs> Alex is definitely a handle guy, and it's something I'm a handle that, guy. Yeah, it's it's something I noticed from a very like early stage. 
Um, and and I take great pride in my handles. And there's nothing wrong with with uh, preferring one over the other. The the trick is to um, bring the two together to, to get the point, get your handle game where you want to go, and then start working on your hand, uh, your blade game to get them both to match. Because one of the biggest things is that. If you focus too much on one aspect, then the whole thing looks unbalanced. Uh, mm. Because the blade will look like it's on the wrong handle. Because like the handle's way too good for this knife. Um, <laughs> or the other way around. What are you saying like, about my knife? It'll look like a dog shit knife. <laughs> like a dog shit handle and on, on a decent blade, which is what a lot of mine look like. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's one of those things where you want to you want to work those two things together... And get them both to the same level so that the whole piece uh, looks cohesive. Um, yeah, and that's that's important on everything. Like in, even in blacksmithing, if you're making, uh, if you really like scrolls but you hate doing riveted joints, uh, and so your rivets are all over the place and you're not heading them properly and stuff like that, it's going to look really obvious. <laughs> and yeah, I mean you can you can make the nicest, tastiest, most delicious meal on the planet, but if there is a turd in the middle of the plate, <laughs> nobody's going to want to eat it. That's it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like watching MasterChef, and, you know, like, the you get the guy who's made the... You know, he, he made everything from scratch, and it's the, the most expensive meal you could possibly ever think of, but then when he comes to plating it up, he kind of just throws it in a bowl, mixes it all around, and then dumps it on a plate. Yep. You know, and it's, you know, you go to a, a $200 restaurant, you know, where you, you're kind of paying $200 for a main course... The last thing you want is for your steak and fries to be just dumped on top of each other. <laughs> you know, like, you expect a little bit of presentation. Yeah, uh, that's right. But then there are also those guys that go all out on presentation, and so they'll serve you, like, baked beans and toast. But it'll all be one, perfectly one laid One bean out. in the center of a plate. <laughs> With an artistic swirl of sauce. Of Vegemite. Know. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> You know, so so you can go one one way or the exact opposite way, and what you want to do is bring those two things together to make yep. a cohesive meal. There's the analogy. Yeah, <laughs> brought to its conclusion. And on that incredible note, that is just I think the peak of our show. Uh, um, honestly, peak peak the, content right here. That's right. Um, we we will. Uh, We'll start wrapping that up and putting a bow on, I think. Let us know if you'd like to go into more detail on working with um, stabilized timbers or, or even unstabilized timbers. There's I, I a think lot of just, detail in I think we're just going to have to do another episode on working with woods um, yeah, in probably. general, stabilized yeah. and unstabilized. Hear more from the woodmaster. Absolutely. And, uh, and, the, and the idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Here we actually make uh, you know it's a it's a good uh, I'm strongly in the unstabilized crowd and you're strongly in the stabilized crowd. Yep. Like yep. I'm I've like damn it, I will be unstabilized and just understand wood. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like I can't be damned understanding wood. I just give me a, a stabilized block. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, so between us, we cover everybody. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> But if you would like to ask us a question or send us encouraging messages of doing more episodes on wood, uh, you can email us at ask.forgecast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram and send us messages there. Or you can find Sam. You can find me at Sam Towns Bladesmith on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Etsy, Redbubble, the Patreon, kitchen the kitchen sink. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm still there. <laughs> And you can find Alex. 
I go by Valhalla Ironworks on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Redbubble, Etsy, Patreon, TikTok, everywhere. Uh, you can't get rid of me. And um, our challenge for this month is still to forge something that you're used to forging, but doing it with your hands swapped. I hate so you, Stefan. Normally, hammer in the right hand and tongs in the left. <laughs> hammer in the left hand, tongs in the right. Yeah, yeah. And see how you go, because ambidexterity is a useful trait in blacksmithing. Mm. But with that, I can hear the music fading in, so we should say our goodbyes. Alvida thing. Yes. Um, so long. Farewell. Alvida <laughs> thing. Good night. Thank you. <laughs> to you and you and you. So. <laughs> okay. See you. Going on too long. Bye, guys. See you later, guys. <laughs>